Welcome to Farming the Depths of Eternal, a constructed podcast all about brewing. Each episode, we do a deep dive on a card and brew some decks around it and see how far we can take it. Uh, I'm Patrick or Potamaru Online, and this week we have Apple Chips from Team Invoke Lethal, and I'm a straight from WSG on to discuss uh, a card um, that was recently buffed in the latest patch. Uh, one of the cards we mentioned actually last week is being a possible constructed consideration, and that is Binding Agreement, which is the six-time time, time uh, spell. It says put your hand on the bottom of your deck, draw cards until you draw two non-power cards with the same cost. So, um, yeah, so I'm a straight. Uh, you mentioned that you thought this was a pretty cool card. What what excited you about this card? The most exciting part of the card is the way that uh, it lists drawing cards. It's not a flat number. It- it leaves possibilities for trying to build your deck in a way that you can maximize the the amount of uh, cards that you can draw, um, and there's some quirkiness to it that that makes it extra extra interesting. I think. Cool. And then uh, Apple Chips, thanks so much for coming on the show this week. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm super happy to be here. Super excited. Been looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm pretty excited too because we have, you know, I'm a straight. We joked how is like halfway qualified for worlds, but you are now qualified for worlds after this last open. So, congratulations. Yes, very exciting. Did you make it last year also? Uh, I missed last year. Uh, I made 2020, but not 2021. Right. Okay. I, I didn't remember. I knew you were like doing a lot of. T and E grinding last year, but I wasn't sure if you made it all the way through that or not. Cool. So now that uh, the, the open's over and we're kind of in this weird, you, you know, this month is the draft open. And so a lot of people are focused on draft. Uh, do you guys still play a bunch of constructed in these, like what people jokingly call like <laughs> dead format, these dead format times? Uh, yeah, I've, I've been playing thrown with a couple of brews um i haven't been playing as much expedition but i do have some decks that i really enjoy to play there that i'll mm-hmm. get into later but uh what about you straight yeah same same here i've been doing a lot of i think split between throne and and, and draft and then dabbling in expedition throne is a, it's always my favorite so that's uh that's usually my sweet spot yeah, I, I play a lot more Throne uh, too. Do you think these draft are these um, the sorry the the balance patch affected the Throne meta much from where we saw the open two months ago? Yeah, I think so. Um, the project and crescendo nerfs. Uh, I mean, basically removed a deck from existence and in the form it was at least um those were specifically crescendo honestly yeah so you don't think you don't think that creation like that token uh uh, abundance uh build works as it previously was with uh with these balance changes yeah i don't i don't think the very low to the ground um super fast yeah abundance deck i don't think that really works anymore i have seen people play um there's a a mid-range kind of version of it going around that's pretty popular 
that still plays Alessi in abundance, but and honestly, sometimes it even plays crescendo. It's a lot less fast. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, so I think, do you... I think it balanced it quite a bit. I, I just don't think it's like a one deck format anymore. It's just more broad. Mm-hmm. Well, because the worry I think a lot of people had with the changes is that Katra would just become the new old deck or the old new deck. Do Do you guys feel like that's happened? Or do you think Katra is beatable in, in the current format? I think Katra is very, very strong. Um, but in terms of its popularity, it, it's almost not played at all, at least on ladder at the current moment in my experience. Yeah, I, I think we would have to wait for a tournament to actually see how prevalent it would be. Um, right. I think Katra probably needs an adjustment at some point. It got adjusted, but it didn't really get adjusted. Um, but in terms of just people picking it up and playing it on ladder, it, it's not it's not around as much. I think it's still very strong, though. Right. Yeah. So, so it's safe to go out in the throne ladder now, though, is, is kind of what... I'd say so. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So uh, let's get into our card, then. Uh, like I said, uh, there, uh, our card this week is Binding Agreement which uh, I'll just read again for those missed it the first time, is a six-time-time spell. Put your hand on the bottom of your deck, draw cards until you draw two non-power cards with the same cost. So this card is, like, absolutely fascinating to me because it there's just, like, I feel like there's so many unknowns and I about this card. Like, uh, first, this is the cheapest wheel effect we have, you know, where you have to discard your hand before you draw cards. Then also you, you're not quite sure how much you're drawing with the card. Um, it's just like, and, and so it's like a build around draw because you can, in some sense, try to maximize how many cards you're drawing by constructing your deck with a wide variety of power costs. So it's just like a really interesting card to me um apple chips did you have any just like broad thoughts about the card um yeah i mean i also think it's a really interesting card there's we haven't had a card like it in in the game uh before um and there i mean we're gonna get into some particulars a bit later i guess but the the general things about it that are interesting is it uh yeah incentivize like you said it incentivizes you to put a diversity of costs in the in the non power cards you're running um and the more you do that the more cards it draws that's that's the TL, tldr <laughs> and um the other aspect of it is that i call it the depth of your curve and what I mean by that is um, how many of each type of card you're running uh, in terms of power cost. So the more you run in of a specific power cost, uh, the less cards you'll draw uh, as a as a rule as well. So, so I guess the, the the first question I have with this card, with any draw spell, is like. How many cards are you expecting to draw when you play a card like Binding Agreement? 
So with binding agreement, I found that if you run like a, a high diversity of costs in your deck, meaning you're playing, you know, cards from like one through eight or, or zero to eight, if you get really spicy, you tend to draw around six cards on average. If you don't build around it, you end up drawing around five cards on average, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, that's one of the interesting things about uh, uh, the card. And I know um, in the uh, Friends of Eternal uh, Discord, Sunnyvale was kind of talking about doing some simulations and stuff and sort of just perusing that. It, it's kind of surprising how good it is, even if you don't really build around it. You know, you're not actually losing that much efficient or value in the card by not building around it. So I, I guess like, so do you think is like going from like five cards to six cards, is that worth bending your deck around? Or do you think this is more just like a card we're going to put in our deck to just like as a, you know, cause drawing five cards for six power is still some of the best is like, some of the best rate we have for a card draw spell in the game as it is. Yeah. Well, so one element of it they have to remember is that you have to you have to bottom your hand. So you don't get to you don't get to keep any other cards when you play it like you mm -hmm. would with a normal card draw spell. So that that is somewhat important. And then the other thing is some decks can really easily play extra costs of cards uh just naturally and one a couple of the a couple of the decks or that i have uh, prepared for today really fit that mold and i think they're really good homes for the card as a result okay could you you explain what you mean by that a little bit more for example like a deck like katra plays it's one of the decks that i've uh, prepared for today and that deck naturally plays cards that cost from zero to eight and it plays them and it's really spread out on the curve as well so it's actually just a it's just a really good home for it um in that sense it draws like it draws over six cards on average and uh, another good home uh, for it is equalized that also has a really high diversity of cost from like one to eight not zero to eight but one to eight so um, that's just another really good home for it as well. I wanted to bring up, you know, like a few of the card draw spells. You know, I feel like the comparison that came to mind is like a six cost card draw spell is uh, D'Angelo's Might, um, which is a six cost card that I don't know. This saw play in Expedition. I don't know how much play it ever really saw in Throne. But I, I guess what I, when I'm comparing the cards in my mind, it, why hasn't D'Angelo's Might saw much thrown play? Play before it was, you know, adjusted to a higher cost. Mm -hmm. And and it it even is, I believe, uh, a, a market grab in the Katra decks uh, often. Right. Um, because, because they're able to ramp and then draw a, a considerable amount of cards. The only thing of note that I would say in comparison, let's say to D'Angelo's mind in comparison to um, Binding Agreement is that <clears throat> excuse me, there's more of a 
uh, there's more of a, a window for interaction from your opponent. Obviously, you don't have to throw your hand away in order to draw cards. You just draw cards, but it requires additional elements, like it requires units to be in play. So the types of decks that can play it are probably limited in a way from, from that requirement. Binding Agreement has those other requirements that you want to try to maximize its potential. Um, but I think that's kind of the split between the two. Uh, Apple Strips, I don't, I don't know if you have any insight on that too. Um, yeah, I think a lot of, uh, I agree with a lot of that. Key differences, have, having to have a unit in play is is a pretty big cost to a card for sure. And then the other main thing is the is the color. Um, some some like Kotra is a, is a shadow based deck, so in terms of if it wanted to market a, an effect like that, then yeah, Dongolos might is more appealing. But for a deck like uh, Tinin Time Zenin mid range, um, the fact that Binding Agreement's a time card is is really good. Um, because that that's what the market is based around um because it plays the time etchings along with that is i do think there's kind of like looking through and seeing all the different like draw spells in eternal i i feel like there's some sort of split between like mid-range sort of draw spells for mid-range like a d'angelo's might is not like a control decks draw spell of choice because it requires a unit. Um, and then binding agreement also kind of feels similar to that in my mind, where is like binding agreement doesn't feel like a control deck card compared to something like a boundless knowledge or even like a, a helio in the market, just like these straight draw spells, especially the primal ones that draw a lot of cards. Like you're just not sticking this, I feel like in your control deck because you have to discard your hand and- It depends on the control deck, like a Combray, the Combray Relics or Equalized type deck. Um, I think Finding Agreement is much more at home in that deck versus um, how Huru Control plays out, for example, um, that just always wants to have a full grip of cards and then just keeps replenishing and adding to it. Um, depending on the plan of the control deck, you might want to reduce the number of cards that you have in your hand in order, let's say, to equalize and then rebuild after that to, to get an advantage. Mm-hmm. Right. And then... Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Um, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say the one thing... there, there. I think there's you, you picked up on something uh, really good uh, Potomaru, and that was that um, you're right. It, it doesn't really fit in a traditional control shell um, like Huru Control, like Straight said. And that's because the card doesn't actually play that well with other card draw spells. Um, because it, if you're playing with other card draw spells, it's, you're going to have more cards in your hand when you want to play the card. You're also not impacting the board before then. And you tend to have like a lot of reactive cards that you want to keep um, and not throw away uh, if you're, you know, classic kind of control, if that makes sense. So you're paying a, a much bigger cost 
for it. And then the the final comparisons I wanted to make were to all the different wheel effects that we have in Eternal. And we have a whole bunch of them at seven cost. You know, like there's one of the the first, this is not quite a wheel, but there's like Sleepless Night, Night, which is a seven cost shadow card with revenge, discard your hand, draw four cards. So that's potentially you're drawing eight cards uh, for seven cost. Uh, half of those delayed. Uh, there's like Talir's Unwinding and Reset the Days, which are uh, both you and your opponent each discard their hand or uh, Reset the Day puts it in their deck. Or I guess they both. Anyway, anyway, you, you get rid of your hand and you draw seven cards. And, you know, like we talked about with at the beginning, you know, you can expect with this with um, Binding Agreement to draw like five or six cards. And so I guess what aspect of Binding Agreement? Is it just that it's one-sided that makes it more playable? Is it that it costs one less that makes it playable compared to like Talir's Unwinding and Reset the Day? Or, you know, Sleepless Night has seen play before, but it's been a very long time. Generally, these kinds of wheel effects like you're describing are played in like all in combo decks that don't mind the sym symmetry of uh, the card draw um, as much as a normal deck would mm -hmm. because they're going to they're going to win the game the turn that they draw those cards so that you're they're, they're they don't even expect their opponent to be able to use the cards <laughs> that they get if that makes sense right right and so the the fact that you're getting fewer cards with binding agreement you're sort of making up for that fact by or you know on average you're making up for that fact by your opponent not drawing it, it, theoretically yeah, it's always a bummer with, with all the wheel effects, with the exception of Talir's Unwinding, because they made it a fast spell. Uh, there's still spells you play during your turn. Presumably, you know, you pay your seven power, you, you deplete all your resources for the turn, and then your opponent gets first crack at being able to use all those nice new juicy cards um, versus you getting to only draw a, a new uh, grip of cards. One exception being, I suppose, if your opponent has face Aegis, then all of these wheel effects don't um, they don't end up affecting your opponent. So you, you play Wrath of Kyphus, you play Reset the Day, Pillars Unwinding, and it'll pop their Aegis, and it will um, you'll get to draw the cards instead of them being able to. Uh, mass production is is a card that doesn't have um, it doesn't allow your opponent to draw cards, but at the same time, it's it's pretty cumbersome of a card. You you'll have to use up those cards within a reasonable amount of time, or or you're going to lose them as well. So, um, I think it's it's more that it costs less. Um, it, it it's less demanding in terms of influence for a, some of these other comparisons, and um, you get to be the one that is actually drawing the cards. All right, cool. So let's get into the decks then. So we're going to start with uh, two equalized decks that uh, that Apple Chips came up with. So I think uh, 
like you mentioned uh, when we we're talking about the cards, uh, equalize, um, you know, these Combray Relics slash equalize type decks are could be a potentially good home for these binding agreements because there's a good diversity of costs. And, you know, what for me, it, it's like one of the cards that um, these decks lost uh, through nerfs is uh, Perilous Research. And so I, I kind of like the idea of putting binding agreement in here as a way once you, you know, you s sort of spill out your hand with your relics, you play equalize, and then you refill with binding agreement. So we have two decks here. Um, Straight, you want to uh, read the the one that you like, and then we can talk about how it fits in here, and then compare it to the second deck. Yeah, happy to. So, so the first example of the equalized deck that we have is a Combray deck. <clears throat> so we've got four builders decrees, four defiance. Uh, four Excavate, which I think is a very interesting card we'll, we'll chat about a little more. Uh, four Pillar of Progress. Four Power Stone. Four gem, co Coveted Gemstone, which is our market access. Uh, four Equalize. Four A New Beginning. Four Shenra Speaks. One Fall of the Spire. Four Binding Agreement. Four Talir, uh Headmistress. Uh, and a nod to a previous episode. And uh, one uh, Bodhi and Rocks forever. And then for Market, we have one... Oh, and four Stormhole Plating, of course. And then the Platings as well. Sorry, I missed that. Um, one uh, for Market, we have one Adjudicator's Gavel, one Mystical Shackles, one Sword of Unity, one Gord of Spurden, and one uh, Stormhold Knife. So how, how does this deck differ besides for the binding agreements um, from the more traditional uh, Combray Relics deck? There's a few different, um, I think, important areas. Uh, one is it's playing a card like Excavate, um, which allows you to... The, the fact that you're going to end up uh, trading your hand away to draw a new, a new set of cards um, is typically a detriment and being able to kind of stack your the top of your deck in a way um, ahead of time and actually using up your card which is not very expensive it's easy to have an additional one power here or there makes it so that you're able to kind of control a little bit of what you're going to be drawing uh, drawing next which is really interesting it also works really really well with equalize um, Bodhi and rocks uh, as well as is is quite interesting because if you if you inscribe it before a reasonable amount of time before you uh, are drawing with binding agreement, you pretty much guarantee yourself to draw an extra card because it's the only seven drop card that you have in your deck. Um, and it it just feels very it feels very unfair, I think, to the opponent when. Like you're playing this game where you're getting rid of your entire hand, you equalize them down to maybe one or two cards, and then you're able to draw six cards after that. It just it just sets uh, it sets up binding agreement turns uh, very very well. Um, Talir as well has been pretty phenomenal in this in this deck. 
kind of for the same reason. And and so what do you like about Talir in, in this particular deck? It's it's very easy to use the power that you get from it, and it's very easy to set up situations where Talir will connect because you're clearing out the board. You can you can leave a between equalized uh your sweeper effects, you can you can keep like two cards in your hand, Talir and a binding agreement, for example, and you're able to kind of do both at the same turn doubles your power essentially in many of the turns um from my experience of playing it because i feel like uh combray relic decks usually have the the flying two four that draws a card never really been a fan of it to be honest yeah um apple chips how do you how do you feel about kind of the the differences of this deck in comparison to the the more traditional version the new the new cards are the excavates the Talier's. And the Bodian Rocks. These are not cards that you normally see in equalized decks. And when I built the deck, I felt like Binding Agreement, like I felt always kind of felt like Excavate was a, a decent card, like you said, in an equalized deck because the card disadvantage, you know, doesn't hurt you as much as it w- normally would sometimes when you're going off with equalized. But with Binding Agreement 2, it makes it even better because um, it generates so many cards and it's also another great card to put on top of your deck (laughs) with Excavate in addition to all the other cards like Builder's Decree and Equalize, stuff like that. Um, It's also uh, another really cute thing that you can do is... uh, if you've played Fall of the Spire, you can excavate a card that you have that's in your void that's also in your hand so that you can play it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it locks down <laughs> cards that are in your void from being able to be played from your hand. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of really interesting interactions with Excavate that you can do in this deck. All right, so straight, you want to read this second example, and then maybe we can talk about what the differences are between uh, with this uh, Combi Relics deck. Yeah, so example number two for uh, equalized decks, uh, we've got four Builders Decree, four Defiance, one Dismantle, four Prism Stones, four Pillar of Progress, four Power Stone, four coveted gemstone for our market access for equalize for a new beginning one harsh rule two shenra speaks one fall of the spire for binding agreement for speaking circle one bodian rocks forever for storm storm halt plating and then our market is one mystical shackles one sword of unity the Creation Project, um, St- Stormholt Knife, and Riding Skyline. <laughs> and um, the, the big difference is that it, it sneaks in another another uh, another color here, very very sneaky way between the Prism Stones, um, and then we have which allows for having market access to creation project and uh, striding skyline. Um, 
Right, because the power in this deck, none of it produces the fire. So it's just the only way to get fire is through Prism Stone. Right. Right. Yeah. And I I don't have as much experience with this, so I'll let Apple Chips kind of talk through a little bit more of the decision decision process, but definitely quite spicy. Yeah. Um, So this, this build outside of the prison stones is a, a little more traditional i would say traditionally built um speak the the speak it doesn't have a talir or uh excavate in it um and it has the speaking circle which is a very commonly played card in these kinds of decks it's it's kind of a card that i i don't <laughs> really like but I, there's not really anything better <laughs> kind of deal if that makes sense <laughs> yeah yeah speaking circles like a really interesting card because i feel like there's a huge disconnect between how like the, a certain group of competitive players talk about speaking circle and then how much people on ladder love speaking circle and it's always like unclear to me like who's who's right on this you know like there are just people out there who are like you should just never play speaking circle but then you see um good players playing speaking circle and then you're like i get very confused on on, because uh one thing card gamers i feel like one quality they have is saying things very confidently and then when you see you see counter examples all the time by other good players and it's very confusing for me in general yeah i think uh that's that's a really good uh thing to point out um i think i can shed some light on that and i think the answer is actually pretty interesting um both both sides are right if that makes sense like the speaking circle it is it is like it's a high variance card. It's and it's a it's a relatively low power level card for throne. But in in when you're when you're building decks, especially unique decks like Equalize, um, sometimes you know less traditionally good cards are just are what your deck needs to to be at its best, um, given what the card pool is. So the you know the spikes or whatever have a point, but you know, that doesn't mean that the card shouldn't be played in the deck also. Yes. I, I wholeheartedly agree with Apple chips. There's, there's just, it, it just depends. It's not a card that you're going to put, you know, in every deck. It's not just because it has no influence requirement. Doesn't mean that it's, it's available to be played in, in all the decks, but a, a deck like equalize a deck, like uh, factionless, it just fits. Um, it it makes sense in those decks. It's what the decks need. Right. Yeah. I that's just one of the things. I just hate how people use unplayable as a, a derogatory term for cards when they do see play. It, one of those things that personally kills me. The other question I had is this, I don't know if this is just an aesthetic thing, but this deck here has a, a split of the five cost um, 
uh, harsh rule effects? Is that mm -hmm. is th is there a reason to have a split? Is there a reason like why one deck does and one deck doesn't? Um, so yes, I'm glad you brought that up. So the the other deck, the the reason the other deck doesn't is because I worked on this deck after the first deck, if that makes sense. So this is, is this is something that came to my attention. Or, or I mean, it's something I, I figured out by thinking about it. Um, and the reason to split the cards is a really marginal and but but still interesting reason, and that is there are certain card effects in the game, like Builder's Decree and the Fall of the Spire, that care about the names of your cards. And so by splitting the names of your cards that do very similar things it leaves you less vulnerable to those effects if that makes sense yes um and it's it's a little more complicated than that but that's like one aspect of what's going on here the other aspect of what's going on here is um they all each of these cards actually does have a small advantage over the other cards in different scenarios. So sometimes uh, with Shenra Speaks, you, you, you've you played like a ramp effect and you don't have your second time. And and in that in those cases, having other sweepers that don't require time can be, can be beneficial. Another thing for Fall of the Spire in particular that it does, it's very um, important and very unique for a card like this, is that if your opponent has a face Aegis, you can play Fall of the Spire on an empty board. Like You don't even have to care about the sweeper part of it. It will pop your opponent's face Aegis, which is really, really important for this deck because you have cards like Equalize and Builder's Decree mm -hmm. that really want your opponent to not have a face Aegis. So you get a little extra value in that sense too. Um, yeah. Cool. And then, so what is uh, Creation Project bringing to this deck? Okay. So yeah, that's the spiciest, like most experimental part of this deck. And the main reason I think it's a good idea is because this is a deck that the, the, the core way the deck wins is by breaking the symmetry of equalize and by doing and it does that by playing ramp relics and and relics in, and and relics in general because equalize doesn't count relics in its you know judgment if that makes sense so it's a way you can break the symmetry of it and so and in those games where everybody has really low resources because you've played, you've, you know, spent all your resources playing ramp relics and then you play equalize. Suddenly your opponent doesn't have that many resources to, you know, have interaction or pressure. And in those spots, the creation project can be a really, really potent uh, way to win the game because it gives you two cards a turn as opposed to your opponent's one card a turn. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's some tension though with like a deck like this, which has like a lot of situational effects? 
to have creation, you know, because you're not always wanting to say, you know, play your harsh rolls or other cards. Um, do you do you think that comes comes up like at all? Um, I would say that's not really that much of a concern because uh, one, because it's a market card. So it's really just you're just having the option to have it. The the other cards that you would run instead, I don't think are like that great. So it, I didn't feel the cost of the market slots were very, was very high. And it triggers every turn. So even if, you know, one turn you don't want to end up using the card, it's it's still okay potentially. The the more potent card is is Striding Skyline, <laughs> which does require you to draw two prism stones, but when you do, the option to have it is like very very crazy because you you just happen to have all these random ramp relics that you know feed into it and if your opponent doesn't have a sweeper that it's going to beat them pretty much yeah yeah th this is very uh almost esque <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes i agree where you're like oh yeah i have a striding skyline in my five color deck that i can only play off of sultan conclaves or something and you're like i i never gonna be able to play this card yeah, yeah it's, it's the exact same idea that almost was pretty much going for like you know if i get there great i have this really potent win condition but you know if i don't draw the if i don't draw the uh if i don't draw these um uh prism stones then i'll just play my deck like normal you know these are just market cards they're not a, they're not affecting my you know main deck choices right exactly Cool. So, uh, Straight, do you want to go into your uh, Praxis Storm list? Yeah. Um, so be before we start, just coincidentally, I think it, this deck that we're going to talk about uh, next actually plays um, almost all between the wheel effects and the uh, <laughs> the binding agreements uh, that it can possibly play within its colors. So I, I thought it was kind of interesting as well. Um, so the deck list is three excavates, <clears throat> highly represented in these decks. Um, <laughs> four torch, four catalyze, four praxis stranger, four uh, spotka evangel, four temple scribes, four draconic looting, three annex smugglers, four rebuild, four grand builder, four binding agreement. For Wrath of Kyphus and for Kairos for the main deck cards. And then our market access. Um, with, with market access, we have access to one Incineration, one Spin Down, one Chrono Storm, one Mass Production, and one Reset the Day. Um, so the, the point of this deck is to use Rebuild uh, to generate really large amounts of power and then use draw effects to, to draw back into that uh, revenge rebuild that's in your deck um, to generate more power again. And then you use more draw spells to keep cycling through your deck. And then the kill conditions are either you play uh, sequences of Kairos, um, which both draws you cards, it gets you into more rebuilds, but does damage, 
and then alternatively you've got uh, incineration in the incineration in the market for uh, doing really large amounts of damage to your opponent because of the the effects that draw cards for both players. <clears throat> so for not very much power, you're able to do a lot of damage. And so what what is incineration? Yeah, it's a two-cost fast spell that says deal one damage to your opponent for each card they've drawn this turn, I believe. And then it has Amplify 3, increase the damage that Incineration deals by, is it 2 or 3? I'm not sure. It's 2, yeah. So if you pay 5, it deals 3 damage to your opponent for each card they've drawn this turn. Yeah. So with One Wrath of Kyphus, if One Wrath of Kyphus, for example, has been played, 7 cards drawn, that'll do 21 damage. If you spend 7 power... That's more than lethal, and you usually would have enough power to do something like that as you're cycling through your deck. All right, so and so that's the um, that's the advantage over I think the more traditional uh, spell that was in this slot was the the one cost spell that. So that's the advantage over flame flame blast, I guess, which just. You just deal damage equal to your power, and so you know traditionally you would just try to rebuild, hit your rebuild again, get you know twenty five power. It allows you to to be able to. It's what I was mentioning was the cheapest way in in that sort of something like pyrotech explosion or flame blast yeah. um, uh, would would need like around twenty power to be able to kill um, to do enough damage. Whereas incineration is only going to need seven. Um, whether right, that if you're, if you're using your your wheel effects like Arathakaifus to cause your opponent to draw a bunch of cards, right? So it it's it's an option as your that is cheaper if you're not able to otherwise get your opponent with your with your Kairos because you don't otherwise need the the other damage anyway. Um, if you're able to generate that much power then your Kairos is probably going to get there anyway. So the thought behind it, at least, was that it's the cheapest way to do the most damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's I, that's really interesting. Um, and I like how, yeah, you, there's sort of more options on, on how to use that. Yeah, th- this is one of the decks where it... I, I've played this deck a bunch uh, in the past, and it felt like... Binding agreement, uh, you know, slots in really well to this deck because you're just once you play a rebuild, you have a lot of power and you just want to draw as many cards as possible. And so people were having to rely on cards like, you know, Wrath of Kyphus, which is in here, or the like demand death, you know, where you draw four cards but you die at the end of your next turn, and um, sort of a lot worse draw spells than uh, Binding Agreement, which is so seems so perfect for this deck because you can draw you know just so many cards with it still room for improvement in in the deck if i were to be honest um Mm -hmm. there's there's likely more considerations something like uh trail stories potentially might might have a place in here because it costs zero so like kind of like let's broaden broaden the 
the curve have more options so that you end up drawing more cards. There's some considerations between you can't really play two rebuilds and expect to draw a lot of cards off of Binding Agreement because you now have two revenge cards within a reasonable amount of space above in, in your deck that you'll end up drawing less cards overall. So I think I think there's still room to make it a better Binding Agreement deck, but it does does still feel pretty nice um, yeah. in this deck. Yeah, but even like when you have two rebuilds in your hand, I mean, like people are playing cards like Nahid's Distillation in the market, which is just like a draw three for, you know, five yeah. or seven. And, you know, that's like a worst case scenario. Like drawing three is like a worst case scenario almost for Binding Agreement. No, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, so I'm pretty excited to give this one a try because this is, I love these decks. Um, you go down to three smugglers. Is is there is that just a space consideration, or you feel like the market's just not as important, or you I, just see I didn't so want to have cards. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to have too many three drops. Um, that's one of a that's a, yet another kind of uh, concession to binding agreement. Um, the more the more cards of a certain cost you have, just naturally the less cards you'll draw. Um, initially, when um, Apple Chips and myself were kind of testing things out, like brewing decks, um, I had tried it in a in a market centric version of the deck where it was playing um, the rebuilds, the rebuild in the market, to just have it very consistently, um, and then trying to buy it back with excavate and spin down more aggressively. The problem with it was that you would just draw two three drops very often and the whole chain would stop. Um, and I realized that you, it, it was just better if it was a main deck card um, and you spread out the, the, the costs a little bit more. And um, you don't really need to go to the market to do your your effect. So as you're drawing through your deck, if you needed to go to the market, you'll you'll, you'll see an you'll see a smuggler. Um, it, it didn't feel necessary to have all four. Mm -hmm. And then my, the, my final question on this is: uh, Do you think this deck is playing enough interaction? I know notice like one of the cards that you cut that's often in uh, uh, in these decks is the the two cost Praxis card the deal two damage and then you can refresh your power so you, you often these these decks play like four torch and four of that card so you, you at least have eight interaction spells um it it does not have a lot of interaction at all um so i think it's more reliant relying on playing the units that it that it has to kind of roadblock for for a couple turns while it tries to set up enough influence to to go off um, like with most of my decks, I feel like the synergy decks, aggressive decks are not a good matchup to them. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's a common thread. Um, so you're right. It's, it's kind of lacking in the interaction aspect, although I'm not sure that the two cost spell that does two damage would realistically change that that much. Uh, if anything, Torch allows you to kind of get around some of the more annoying effects like Suppressor or... Um, uh, law mage that would otherwise kind of just beat you outright. Well, one of the things is when you're building 
a deck like this, your card slots are, you know, a, a large portion of them are dedicated to your combo. So if you're going to play, you know, cards that don't work with your combo, you have to, you know, they're, they're essentially tech cards in that case. Like you have to be, you have to be certain that if you're going to play more interaction, that it lines up well with the decks in the format and that it helps you, you know, significantly win more. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise you're making your deck less effective into an open field, you know? So it, it, it's always been, it's always a balance for sure. Right. Very good cool. point. All right. So shall we go on to these two Xenon decks that we have here? Oh, oh yes. <laughs> these, uh, these decks draw the most cards with binding agreement than any other deck I've seen because they play cards that cost zero all the way up to eight. It's quite, quite, quite fun. <laughs> yeah. So, the, so this is your, uh, your Tienan deck, which is a time focused Xenon deck. Um, yep. it, it starts with your zero cost card is your, uh, four sand warrior. Then you have four logistic experts, uh, four time etchings for market access. Uh, and so logistic expert is, uh, you know, you have your two one drops there. Uh, then your two drops are Al Heed Ascending for those four exploit, two send an agent. So you got 10 uh, two drops. Your three drops are uh, four Aurelian Merchant, uh, four Banish. Your four drops, you have two Sandstorm Titan, four Twin Spiteling, uh, five drops, you have uh, four Moonstone Vanguard, you have four Binding Agreement, uh, four Talir Time Jumper, so eight six drops. Uh, you have two Azendel Revealed as your uh, your top end uh, with eight drops. Um, so Talir time Talir is really confusing. There's so many Talirs. Oh, it's actually it's, a different it's the Talir. time jumper, so it's a seven drop. Yeah, it's a really weird card. It uh, it has Inscribe, and it's a seven drop with charge. Uh, it's a six six, and it the text is really weird and really particular, and it's one of those cards that you have to read, like. Or else you won't understand like how it works at all. I feel like and, you have to read it, and then you have to have it happen a couple times, and then you're like, okay. yeah, yeah. But so the 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 key thing about it is it jumps out of existence when it's targeted by a spell, and it also jumps out of existence when your opponent plays a spell on their turn. So those are the only times it jumps out of existence otherwise it's just a 6-6 six, six charge um but that's pretty the reason i'm so the reason i uh we're, we're playing it is well one it's seven drop so it works nicely with binding agreement two it's an inscribed card so that's a pretty nice that's a pretty nice uh backup plan for a seven drop in your mid-range deck mm -hmm. uh to to make your power drops especially since making power drops is really important to, you know, getting up to your six power for binding agreement. And then the third reason I chosen this card over other cards is this card is really, really good against sweeper focused strategies. Um, because it, it's, it's a huge pain for them to get rid of, um, because of the jumping away clause. 
Um, if they play a sweeper, it goes away. If they point a removal spell at it, it goes away. So they to kill it, they have to have a card like um, Stormholt Plating. That's like the cleanest way to kill it that exists. Uh, or they could make bigger units with like Builder's Decree or something. But, you know, it's it's a really bad matchup for you, and it's kind of, it's a huge pain for them to deal with. So that's the idea behind it. Mm-hmm. And so this is it's kind of and and at the same cost. The Combray Relic had the Bodian rocks in it as this like seven drop inscribed. That's kind of a pain to deal with, and and so yep. these. But I guess that really wants to be your only unit, and so this is more of a mid range deck, since you have a higher possibility of units like Talir's fit, fitting that role better. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Bodian rocks really wants to be played in a deck with almost no other units in it, um, which is exactly what Equalize is. It's it's basically a unitless control. It's not exactly control, but, you know, it's a unitless deck for, for the most part, outside of Builder's Decree. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And that's uh, that's ex- exciting that, uh, that, that Talir's in here. It's kind of a card I always wanted to, because I, I always dream that... Uh, uh, Direwolf will eventually start putting uh, more, like a, a blink-like effect in uh, in Eternal, where a card disappears and then comes back and then plays its summon again. Uh, you know, because right now Eternal mostly just has bring it back to your hand and then you have to pay full cost. They they released another card in the last set that's very similar to what Talir does. It's called uh, Stutter Step, and it does the it does her effect. Uh, for any unit one time so that's really cool uh you know i feel like tedin is uh you know a, a, katra has been such the focus of these xenon decks um recently what advantages do you think tedin has like a, as a deck um so as a in terms of advantages well, there's some. There's obviously unique cards that Tina gets to play that Katra doesn't get to play. Um, there's well in this deck. There's Sand Warrior, which is a just a really cool card. It uh, it's been around forever. It's like a, I think it's I think it was in set one, um, and it only really became a consideration when Time Symbol came out in Argent Deaths. Because that that allows you to play uh, on turn two, a turn a whole turn sooner than you uh, you know normally would be able to, mm-hmm. and so um, yeah, it's really cool. You, zero cost three three is incredible. It's an incredible tempo play um, for for a deck that has this uh, amazing card draw finisher. In the sense that you you can play it and empty your hand out faster, and you can also play it after drawing cards with binding agreement in that same turn to kind of cushion you from the tempo loss that you get from you know tapping out for a card draw spell. Right. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Yeah, and then Tinan also just has some standalone strong cards like Twin Spiteling and stuff. Yeah. That, that catch. Katra doesn't really have access to. Cool. So yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. If you had anything else to say. 
No, yeah, I was gonna, yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's another great point. The twin spiteling and Alhead are are really good cards, um, as well. And it's kind of more, you know, straightforward, more a more honest, more fair kind of deck, <laughs> right? In general, which has its appeals for for certain players. Yeah. So let's get into your um, your Katra version that's playing Binding. There, yeah, it's relatively pretty stock Kotra lists. If you look at Kotra lists um, from from the last tournament, this deck looks, you know, almost card for card uh, what they look like, with the exception that uh, some of the decks were not playing Tazbu because of the prevalence of the aggressive uh, creation uh, abundance list. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tazbu has always been a great card in the deck, in like the stock, what I would call the stock version of Katra. It, it just fits really well because, you know, you're, you're already building your power base for Katra to play a lot of, to play all shadow sources. And, um, you also have, you know, cheap units that draw you cards when they die with Tazbu as well. So... The, the special, the really special thing about Binding Agreement in this deck is it has literally zero deck building cost. Like, all of these cards are cards you would play anyways in Contra. Like, like that's not even hyperbole. Like, this is, like, I changed two cards from this deck. Like, uh, I think people are playing, like, Exploit in this slot, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Binding Agreement is a really good fit here because it plays really well with ramp effects. So like like Equalize, it plays really well there because you're trading cards for ramp and you you can just play you can play more cards because you're ramping. It just it just meshes really really well with what Binding Agreement wants to be doing. Um so yeah, it's it's I'm pretty excited about it. I haven't played it that much, but um yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think this is cool. I'll just read it out for people who don't know. Because like you were saying, this starts with the zero cost card. You're playing uh, four last chance, which is sort of like the zero cost dark return that gives void bound. Uh, there's four dark water vines, four shadow etchings as your one drops, uh, four Brent's insight, four spore folk, four vine grafters as your two drops. Uh, for Karimden Merchant as your three drops, for Katra as your four drops, for Tazbu as your five drops, two binding agreements as your six drops, uh, or Carvet I think is also a six drop, so four Carvets is uh, four more six drops, uh, for Fear is your seven drops, and then uh, for Azendel is your eight drops. Yeah, so it's, yeah, like you said, it just seems like it slots in really nicely because, um, you know, after you play your Katra, you have a you, you have a ton of power. You have a great diversity of power costs here. You can play Binding Agreement to, you know, refill your hand after you've played a bunch of your Dark Water Vines and your Spore Folk and all of these cards to sort of empty your hand to set up your Katra. So... Yeah, I, I think this is a pretty exciting new addition to Katra. The one notable thing about it is that this deck only plays two binding agreement because of the deck building restrictions 
that uh, come with um, Bren's Insight, you can't play too many non-unit cards or else the card is just kind of like non-functional. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so that is the reason there's only two. But I, I was just going to also mention Darkwater Vines. Um, I, can, I can see situations where, you know, you have a non-procced Darkwater Vines in play and you can binding agreement uh, knowing for certain that you have an Ezendel, for example, in the bottom of your deck. Uh, draw you into some kind of discard effect and then that in turn discards it indirectly so that it also has that kind of interesting aspect to it as well yeah it's really cool interaction yeah that would be a very heads up play (laughs) so it's really impressive like um sunnyvale helped me uh do some simulations um to evaluate uh, how many cards that binding agreement draws and also some probabilities on like the kind of the out the differing outcomes that can happen as a result so in terms of the average number of cards it draws for this contra deck it draws a whopping 6.6 cards as a as its average and then the median is six which is, I don't know, that's just, that right off the bat is just really amazing to me. And then um, there's also uh, a stat here that it draws, of the of the 6.6 cards that you draw, like, or not, not, not exactly, but on average, in terms of non-power cards that you draw, it's 4.4. So when you play Binding Agreement, on average, you're going to draw 4.4, you know, non-power cards. Um, that's also pretty impressive in terms of efficiency. Um, right. And then, yeah. And then some other, another interesting statistic is the statistic of the odds of drawing at least X cards. So uh, you have a 73% chance to draw at least five cards with binding agreement. You have an 85% chance to draw at least four cards, and you have a 95% chance to draw at least three cards. So kind of alluding back to what you said earlier, like the reasonable floor for binding agreement is like three cards. Like you're almost always going to draw three cards. It's 94% to do so. You're usually going to draw at least four as well, like 82%. Um, so it's just, it's a rel- it's a very consistent card um, in that sense. Like way more consistent than you would think it would be by right. just, you know, thinking about it without stats. Yeah, well, I think one of the reasons is just the floor is so high. Um, for yeah, you know, because like five costs to draw three is you know that card is it hasn't really seen play, but that was sort of the going rate in Eternal. <laughs> yeah, for time, for time, yeah, that's that's another that's a really important part of this too, like. This card gives decks that traditionally don't have card draw options 
very powerful card draw. Um, and yeah, that's just, that's why it's so impactful in like Katra and Combra Equalize. Like these decks don't have card draw. They don't have anything remotely resembling this card. Right. And so I, yeah, and that's what I think is so impressive about it is that it's not only card draw in, in these, in this color, but then it just has such, such a high ceiling, <laughs> a low, or yeah, it's just like, you can just draw a lot, you know, cause like your stat with at least five cards is, um, what was it? Sorry. Seventy three percent. Yeah. Or, uh, wait, Katra, Katra was seventy three percent. Yeah. And so, like, yeah. And or like yeah. the, you know the the average being six point six. That means you're drawing seven, eight, nine cards possibly. It's a uh, pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, it's it's a huge upside to the card. Like the fact that it can randomly win you games that you honestly kind of have no business winning because of that high roll potential is is also like really really good yes and because that was like one of the things that I, I wondered about before you know sort of talking it through is like especially for competitive play you know people i think tend to want to shy away from very random effects um but Binding agreement, I feel like, gets around that downside of being random by having that high floor. All right, straight. I think we're we're heading into our more speculative uh, section here. Do you want to talk about your skyline deck? It's actually not my skyline deck. Oh, it's, it's not your skyline deck. Chipses, but oh I'm yeah, that's also my deck. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's a little <laughs> bit different from uh, my approach to skyline, uh, but it makes sense with. Um, with binding agreement. And it's something I, I can mention before uh, running through the list is my decks typically have a very high um, amount of two drops. So when I started kind of playing around with binding agreement, I noticed I wasn't drawing that many cards, but that was more about how I build my decks mm-hmm. and less about the card. Um, so let's jump into the Apple Chips of Skyline deck here. So we've got four All Nighters. Two Praxis Blueprints that rounds out our one drops. Oh no, we have four torches as well. So that's those are our mm-hmm. one drops. And then we go into two drops is four dinosaur nest, four power stone, four reactor forge. And then into three drops, we've got four Aurelian Merchants, four Draconic Looting. Um, for four drops, we've got four Eternity Core. Uh, for our five drops, we've got four Inferno Dens and four Moonstone Vanguard. Um, and then we move into six drops with four Binding Agreements. And uh, finally, we get into uh, Striding Skyline, which if I remember, right, it should be a seven drop. And then our market is one Impound, uh, the Praxis Arcanum, a Krogar, a Nash, a Desert Prince, and a Kairos point of the deck is you're trying to play out um, a high number of relics and then follow that up with striding skyline sacrificing those relics to make a really large number of skylines and ideally you want to have something like an inferno den or alternatively you want to have 
grabbed a Praxis Arcanum and given your Skyline uh, charge that was in your hand so that you're able to attack with everything on the same turn. You don't have to worry about uh, the opponent having some kind of sweeper effect to deal with your with your Skylines. Right. And so the way to give charge in the deck is the Inferno Den and a Praxis Arcanum. And the Praxis Arcanum, yes. That's right. So uh, one question I had is, are are we not all in enough to play a card like uh, Azerite Prixis? Is that is that too crazy? Yeah, it's not it's not really worth it, I don't think, because yeah, it, the card just doesn't do anything else. It only works when you draw Skyline. When Azerite Prixis has been good, it's generally been good with Entotas because it has all that synergy. And then the only other time I've seen it be good besides Totas was clear the way combo because um, that deck combos off like it's trying to combo off like in the first three turns of the game. So, yeah. This deck plays a lot slower than clear the way Mm -hmm. um, in that sense, because you have to have seven power to play your skyline. So the cost of, you know, playing a a do-nothing card, I guess, like Prixis is a lot higher. Um, if right. that makes sense. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I guess I was just wondering, and this is not me saying that this is how it should be, just like with the Reactor Forge being sort of like your fast ramp and then, you know, putting a Prixis in here and taking out some kind of duplicate cost probably raises your draw potential like 0.1% or something. But just, you know. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. I'd be curious to try it, honestly. Just That's even, interesting. Even, even if it's just, you know, dumping extra cards from your hand before you uh, binding agreement to draw cards. Um, yeah, I'd be curious to try it. That is interesting. I hadn't considered the fact that it's zero drop for binding agreement um in that um yeah that's cool all right cool uh anything else on this deck this is another kind of this is my style of deck (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's pretty out there uh (laughs) is is the moonstone vanguard there just as uh a sort of anti-aggro yeah, it's it's one of the it's a it's a card that has a lot of roles packed into one card. Uh, that's that's one of the roles that it provides for you. Another role is just like making you more consistently play power drops um, when you're keeping your opening hands, and it also this deck has ways to give it charge because it's trying to give skyline charge so it kind of like piggybacks off that into being like you know an above average unit um than it would be you know in a deck that can't do that um so yeah it's it's kind of it's also just a five drop there there aren't really you have the you have the inferno den but uh right yeah um, and then and then you have the krogar in the market but the the fact that this has uh uh whatever that 
the draw ability. Yeah, the draw ability is really good. It's really important for this deck to to draw extra cards to you know feel feel yourself to towards your combo. Right. Cool. And the the pledge, which is not as cool of a an inscribe effect, but it does help in yeah. the few turns. So after all of these serious decks, I'm almost embarrassed to talk about <laughs> what I've been messing with this week. Um, but, you know, 50 power world pyre. So hear me out. This does have ECQ pedigree. This has made it to a day two of an ECQ and eternal. <laughs> but I, I just like when doing these cards to just like really think about how to maximize it, whether, whether that's good or not. And so this is how I thought you could draw the most cards humanly possible with binding agreement. So that's that's all I'm trying to do here is draw as many cards, a lot of them power with binding agreement. And then in my market, I have a card called Fantastic Revelation, which plays all the power I just drew from my hand depleted. And so it's like a worse Katra. It's also not, it's actually 48 power, but you know, who's counting? So what I decided to do is just play as few with the 50 power. The point of the 50 power is you're only playing 25, 27 cards. And so you could really diversify your cost. And World Pyre is a card that wants a lot of high cost cards. So you're already playing cards like Eight of the Huru, which costs 12. So that really allows you to diversify your costs. So, so I have just about two cards at each cost. So I have two All-Nighters by one cost, two Devotee of the Sands as two for ramp, two, two Aurelian Merchant, uh, possibly want four of that, uh, four World Pyre, two Harsh Rule, four Binding Agreement, one Davia Azure Breaker, uh, two Shashenka of Kosol, two From the Heavens, two Subversion of Nature, two Scourge of Frostome, two Eight of the Huru, and then 48 power in this deck. So any, any thoughts? Yeah, some, some thoughts, and I'm sure uh, Apple Trips will share some as well. Um, so tried um, very high power um, combinations with, uh, with Binding Agreement. And um, and I'm I'm also we're aware of I think both of us because we looked at it together uh, relatively recently when we were doing the higher high power of the uh, ECQ pedigree deck that you are referring to, um, and the thing that kind of bummed me out and I don't mean to start on a negative note by any means uh, about binding agreement and the way that it functions when you try to exploit it as much as you are with this kind of deck is that one, there's a maximum hand size in Eternal. So you cannot just draw an in, like uh, any amount of cards. You draw up to 12. And with that in mind, what, what we noticed was that once you reach that maximum hand size, the way that uh, Binding Agreement works is it just stops drawing cards. It doesn't, it doesn't um, like overdraw and throw cards in the void. It just stops. Um, so one of the unfortunate aspects of that is that I I drew uh, quite a few 
10 power hands um, that uh, when I was playing that kind of deck, um, which which kind of I couldn't figure out a way uh, to take advantage of those situations in addition to just drawing good cards that are in in my deck. You are playing the uh, Fantastic Revelation, which I think is really cool. And we also tried, there's a spell that basically you amplify it by playing power out of your hand to make a 5-5 um, five, five Sentinels. Oh, that's, I like that idea too. It's called Send an Envoy. Send an Envoy is another option. And what it reads is uh, for six, uh, three time, it says play a 5-5 five, five, uh, Skyguard Sentinel, Exhausted. And it has Amplify, play a power from your hand depleted to play an additional uh, Sentinel Exhausted. Um, so it, you're able to play you know, the six, seven power in your hand and to play it ramps you even further. It also makes a lot of five fives. Unfortunately, they are exhausted, so they're not able to block that turn, which is one of the big detriments of the card itself. But it is kind of a, a win condition. Uh, that that you can use that also serves as a as a ramp effect uh, as well to to get to your aid of the Huru power. It is unfortunate that you can only draw twelve cards with uh, binding agreement, and it's unclear from the wording on why that is true. Um, I feel like, but it is what it is. The sort of the larger, more general question I have is like, is World Pyre? Is that like a viable strategy at all? I feel like that is a deck that had its moment in the sun and then disappeared, even though it feels like it should be a very powerful effect. I think I could answer that. So I agree. Let's see. Yeah, when when World Pyre saw competitive play, there was two things that really propped it up. The first thing was uh transpose it's like it was like a perfect card to use it because it not only fetched the card it also protected it because it's the most important card in your deck um the other thing about it is that these 50 power like five faction decks really relied on silixes before they received their nerf so before silixes nerf um, you could play just like a ton of Silexes and they would just draw you extra free cards and they would also critically be undepleted very consistently by turn three, which is crazy. Um, and they can't do that anymore because of uh, how they've been changed. So I think those two things, like uh, I believe... Um, I don't know if it was a 50 power deck, but I believe that Roshi built a five faction even world pyre deck with tons of Silexes and day two with it <laughs> also. And it was because of those two things. It was because of the transpose and it was because of Silexes. Right. And that's just how powerful they were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I know like Random uh, has a deck on Eternal, like on Warcry in the last few months that was a, a World Pyre deck. Um, I think he was messing around with Loaded Toss 
um, because it's a deck with so many seven plus cost cards. But I, I do wonder if maybe not doing the 50 power version, but just because like we've been talking about, like World Pyre of any deck really can have the biggest diversity of spells if that is an interesting way to take it or something sort of to noodle with further. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with Apple Chips and the, the, the two points that he made. I think, so, for how viable the five-color many power or just five-color World Pyre decks, I think that was the Silex makes a big difference. And then the World Pyre itself as a card, I think Transpose made a huge, a huge difference as to... Um, if it can be competitive or not, because it's very difficult for you to play your, you know, your, your forecast. This is the most important card in my deck relic, uh, into, uh, just a, a, a turn without Aegis or something like that, where you can't protect it. It makes it significantly less, less, less doable. Um, and hoping that you actually will, will be able to get another turn to, uh, to activate it. Yeah, in a world with send an agent. Yeah. There's a there's a lot of cheap answers and like which have had to exist because of cards like create the creation project or other kind of really strong cards. It kind of cuts away on the fun that you can have with maybe more fun options. All right, cool. Well that is all our decks here. So I guess uh uh closing thoughts um uh, starting with you, Chips. Uh, so, do you think that uh, that binding agreement has a, a place in competitive play going forward? Absolutely. I think it's competitive applications in every format, including draft and expedition and throne. Um, it's it's a unique card, and it's in a color that doesn't have good card draw, like. Oh, just those two things. There's, there's gonna be over the course as long as this card costs six and you know isn't changed to work less well. Um, I think this card is going to see play um, in a variety of strategies. Another, uh, this is a little bit. Uh, this is kind of back on the the last deck you had. I actually uh, plugged in the stats in the simulation really quick for your deck. If you're curious. Yeah, please. <laughs> so the uh, average number of, of cards that you draw is over 12. So that's that's cool. You you succeeded in, uh, you know, maximizing that uh, that percentage. And then uh, some more targeted stats on terms of like how likely you are to do that um, are in terms of uh, drawing 12 cards, the odds of doing so, you have a two-thirds chance to draw 12 cards. So every, you know, every two times you play the card, you're going to draw 12 cards. It, you know, not exactly, but kind of. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, and to draw more than nine cards, you have like a three-fourths chance. You have like 70, 75% chance to draw uh, to draw um, more than 10 cards 
oh, <laughs> 11 cards. It, it scales up really fast. You, it does draw. You're drawing a ton of cards uh, yes. in that deck every single time, pretty much. It's really, it's pretty cool. Do you have the non-power? This is, that's the number. I do, one. yes, I do. I figured you would be curious about that. And uh, so the non-power, it draws the average uh, non-power cards that it draws is a uh, 5.5. Okay. So about ha- a little less than half the cards you draw are, are actual cards still. So that, that that's pretty impressive, honestly. Anyway, so yeah, I'm just throwing it out there. Something to think about. If you, if you I'm not, I'm no claims on being a great deck, but it's just there are people out there, you know, playing World Pyre still. There's the one Chinese guy in Masters every month that's jamming World Pyre. So people are doing it, and uh, I just thought it would be an interesting way to see just how many cards you could draw with Binding Agreement. I do agree with Straight that the fact that you are capped at 12 is problematic, but, you know, sometimes you just need to get a a little lucky. And if you have multiple ways, like, you know, the six-cost card you were talking about or a card like Fantastic Revelations, you know, that allows you, if you can, you know, draw eight, 12 cards with binding agreement and then play a fantastic revelation then like at that point who cares if they kill your world pyre um so right what i'd like to say though is about this deck and world pyre in the deck or world pyre not in the deck is like put a pin in it because a deck like this is just waiting for one more card to be printed that works with everything and all of a sudden this becomes a deck like imagine Imagine us having a relic that said discard a power from your hand to do something uh, and, and in a repetitive way. And, and all of a sudden now this this can be like a serious a serious uh, competitive deck. Uh, so like this is something that it's 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 an experiment now. It's something that reminds me a little bit of how I made like an experimental version of Factionless before um, before Cast Iron Furnace was printed. Uh, just to test out, I'm like, hey, we have enough factionless cards. What does this look like? And uh, and all of a sudden, like a couple of cards get printed, and it becomes like a real deck. So I think I think this is I think this is like there, kind of at the cusp, these kind of ideas. And you know, it needs the the binding agreement on the one hand, but I think like one more card gets printed, and all of a sudden, this might be a a really potent deck. Cool. So I, I think we'll end our show there. Uh, thanks so much for for coming on Apple Chips. I really appreciated all your insight and all the decks you brought. It's been really great. That was a blast. Cool. So uh, yeah, that's our show. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, if you want to support us, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash farmingeternal. Uh, you can leave our Thumbs up our Reddit post. That's the main way I think people find the show. And uh, yeah, see you again in a couple weeks. Have a good night, everyone. All right, cool.